This week, we want to bring you two episodes that we recorded a few years ago about a John Doe case here in Georgia that we're really hoping to bring more attention to, the Twiggs County John Doe. Before you hear that, we'd like to play a preview for you of the episodes that are coming up next week, covering two different Jane Doe's in Nashville, Tennessee. Beginning March 15th, the Fall Line True Crime Podcast is releasing a two-part series on two well-known Tennessee unidentified person cases, the Nashville Jane Doe's known as Sherry Jane Doe and Leo Doe. Both victims were discovered in Nashville area rivers, and despite being found soon after death with possible eyewitness sightings that provide vital detail, neither has been identified to this day. A photo of a little boy, a phone number, a special necklace, a unique tooth, there are so many details that could connect both victims to their identities. After months of research in collaboration with a Metro Nashville police detective, we're bringing you a deep dive into each case, including never-before-heard information on each unknown victim. With exclusive interviews, insight into genetic genealogy leads, and a new forensic drawing we commissioned that could bring in new tips on one of the cases, this is a series you won't want to miss. Beginning March 15th, be sure to listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Remember, one of the best ways to help doe cases get solved is to keep them in the media, in the public eye. This is part two in a two-part series. Please listen to episode one before continuing with part two. This series contains discussion of autopsy. Listener discretion is advised. This is the fall line. In this episode, we look to the future. Special Agent Weathersby of the GBI's plans for the Twiggs County John Doe's case and what might be accomplished through both isotopic testing and, possibly, forensic genealogy. We talk about both subjects on this show a lot. Listeners may remember the case of Dennis Doe, a child found in DeKalb County, Georgia, who we covered in Season 4. His body was discovered in a cemetery in the Atlanta metro area, and isotopic testing showed that he was from our region, somewhere between Atlanta and northern Florida. We've had forensic genealogists from the Trans-Doe Task Force, Redgrave Research, and the DNA Doe Project on the show to discuss their work on cases like Julie Doe from Season 4 and, in Season 8, Henry Lovelace. But what we haven't done, and something that listeners have asked for, is really explore the science, the lab science and what's behind it, that's used to solve cases. And understanding that, the science can matter to our listeners, to law enforcement, and to families. So, in part two of the Twiggs County John Doe, we'll start where his file left off. Agent Weathersby's decision to pursue isotopic testing in the case. His two decades of work on this case and his interest in finding a lab to do the isotopic testing, they were both very evident in his notes. It's what made us reach out to request an interview in the first place. And it turns out that Agent Weathersby has a long-standing interest in forensics and developing science, having been trained at the University of Texas, 
UNT, where NamUs is currently housed. When I spoke to Agent Weathersby in February of 2021, I asked him about his plans for testing. I know that you've talked to me a little bit about your hopes of pursuing isotopic testing in this case. What are you hoping to discover about the Twiggs County John Doe? Well, with isotopic testing, sometimes it can tell you if not a particular person, but where a particular person came from, their origins, where they were born, where they spent their formative years. Uh, I know it's been used in cases in the past to locate where someone was raised up until they became an adult, and then they were able to take other isotopic testing and figure out where they lived since they were an adult. If we get those kind of parameters to put on this person, then we would be able to tell at least a location or a starting point on finding the identity of my victim. If we know he was raised in Utah from till age 12 and then moved to the Northeast, that's going to limit how many people we need to be looking for. There can't be that many people who was raised at age 12 in Utah who now live in the Northeast. So those kind of parameters will greatly benefit. Instead of looking uh, at 3 billion people throughout the planet, we'll be looking for a couple hundred thousand. And that can limit how long it takes us to identify my victim. To help us understand isotopic testing, how it works, its limitations, and its role in solving cold cases, we spoke to Dr. Leslie Fitzpatrick. Dr. Fitzpatrick is an assistant professor at Mercyhurst University in the Department of Applied Forensic Science, where she teaches courses related to biological and forensic anthropology. She specializes in stable isotopic analysis. Dr. Fitzpatrick works with both ancient and modern samples, including those used in criminal investigations. First, if you don't mind, can you explain what isotopic analysis is in the general sense? What would one be analyzing and what would they be looking for? So if we think back to our high school chemistry class, we may remember the periodic table. Each element on that table has a unique atomic number, and that atomic number correlates to the number of protons in the nucleus of an atom of that element. The numbers usually listed at the top left-hand side are those little boxes um, for each element on that table. And those protons are the positively charged particles inside of the nucleus. But there are also neutrons in that nucleus too. Those guys have neutral charge. Since the number or the atomic number is defined by the number of protons and each element has a unique number of protons associated with it, if we change those number of protons, that means we're actually changing what element it is. But what's really cool is what we can change the number of neutrons and it doesn't change the atomic number because we're not messing with the number of protons. And if you remember, number of protons equals the element, but you can change those neutrons no problem. So when you change the number of neutrons in the nucleus of an atom, you actually get an isotope of that element. Some isotopes are stable and don't undergo any kind of radioactive decay. And of course, we have some isotopes that are what are called radioisotopes, and those guys undergo radioactive decay. For the purposes of isotopic analysis in forensic and archaeological applications, we're primarily concerned with stable isotopes. That's why you'll often see our analyses referred to as stable isotope analysis, and it kind of helps to specify that we're not dealing with any kind of radioisotope. To help this make a bit more sense, let's look at three of the main stable isotopes that we use in forensic and archaeological applications and what each of those can tell us. 
The main themes that we explore with such stable isotope analyses are related to dietary analysis and geographic mobility. For dietary analysis, we look primarily at carbon and nitrogen isotopes. The atomic mass listed on the periodic table represents the atomic mass of the most abundant, naturally occurring form of each of these elements. Different isotopic forms of carbon dioxide are used differently by plants during photosynthetic processes, which we refer to as C3 or C4 processes. We either consume those plants directly, particularly if you're a vegan, or indirectly, if you're omnivorous, through eating other consumers, leading to the incorporation of different forms of carbon into our bodies. Examining carbon-stable isotopes for dietary analysis ties in nicely with nitrogen-stable isotope analysis. As part of the global nitrogen cycle, atmospheric nitrogen is converted into forms usable by plants by certain forms of bacteria and blue-green algae. We incorporate nitrogen into our tissues the same way that we incorporate carbon into our tissues, through eating things. Terrestrial and marine-based protein sources have considerably different nitrogen isotope ratios when we combine our knowledge of cultural dietary practices with stable carbon and nitrogen isotope analysis, this can actually be potentially useful in forensic applications. For example, in a study conducted by Drs. Bartolink, Berg, Beasley, and Chetson of the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command Central Identification Lab, or the JPAC-SIL, in 2014, they were able to effectively discriminate between U.S.-born soldiers and individuals indigenous to sites in Asia such as Korea, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Papua New Guinea. And they did this using primarily carbon analyses. From a general forensics and human rights perspective, such analyses may be useful in helping to differentiate between individuals based on dietary practices. So another example, as part of my doctoral dissertation, I examined several individuals from a site near Evanston, Wyoming called Red Mountain. So based on mortuary artifact analysis, these individuals were buried sometime in the late 1800s, early 1900s and they were thought to have been workers on the railroads that passed near the region. Now, osteological analyses, looking at the bones, suggested that these individuals were likely of East Asian ancestry. So we were really interested in seeing if these individuals may have actually been some railroad workers that were recruited from China, which was a very common practice during that period, or if in fact, these guys might have been descendants of earlier East Asian immigrants to the United States, such as those that we saw coming over in the California gold rush. Based on historic documents, it was suggested that railroad workers from China maintained culturally mediated dietary practices, even going so far as to order foods from China to be delivered to the United States so they could continue eating their more traditional diets. Based on stable carbon and nitrogen isotopes of these individuals, there was very little change in their diet from the beginning of their lives to that towards the end. So they were probably maintaining their dietary practices across the diaspora, which may have been a means of preserving cultural affiliation. At this point though, you're probably thinking to yourself, people eat similar foods, so how can you really tell where somebody's from? That's when we can turn to yet another stable isotope, oxygen. The primary method for incorporating oxygen into our tissues is not breathing as most people would think. It's actually in the things that we drink. Of course, things like relative aridity, ambient temperature, weather patterns, and so forth can affect the water composition in a certain region as well. This leads to different water in different regions having different stable oxygen isotope compositions. The overall water composition of a large area like the United States is represented by different bands on a map that are called isoscapes. And this is kind of a portmanteau, a mashup of the words isotopes and landscapes. So we can look at the oxygen composition of a person's tissue to see if there have been any changes over time, which can indicate some geographic mobility. 
So if we think back to that Red Mountain example, looking at the potentially Chinese railroad workers, the stable oxygen isotopes associated with their early life actually does place them in the Guangzhou region of China, while it appears that their final decades of life were likely spent in the American West and Midwest. It's really important to note here, we've talked about carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, but those aren't the only ones that you can use in forensic applications. But they are the most common ones, which means they're the least expensive to analyze, which makes them more accessible for researchers like myself. So what would those results tell us about a decedent? And what would the limitations be? So if you're interested in the beginning of a person's life, such as where they lived when they were growing up, you'd want to perform a stable isotope analysis of their teeth. Since teeth don't regenerate once they're formed, they're a lasting record of what occurred during that period of a person's life, which is why we have to take such good care of our teeth. For individuals with adult dentition, the composition of the tooth's crown reflects the period of time during which the crown was forming. For the purposes of forensic analyses, we want to select teeth that best represent childhood past the period of nursing which would show the influences of the mother's body through the breast milk. So we want to avoid that. Ideally, we examine the second molar if it's available. Through examining the tooth enamel, we can get an idea of the general diet of the individual during their per- this period of their life, as well as their general geographic region of origin. If you want to see if a person moved around during different parts of their life, you could examine teeth that form early in the person's life, such as their central incisors, you know, your first two teeth there, versus a late-forming tooth, such as your wisdom tooth. If you want to look at the last decade or two of an individual's life, that's when we're going to turn to bone. Our bones actually regenerate about once every two decades for our appendicular skeleton, so like your arms and your legs, or once every decade for our axial skeleton, which include our ribs, spine, and skull. By examining different skeletal elements, say like a piece of a femur uh, in your leg, so like your big leg bone there, or a rib, we can get an idea of changes in a person's diet or mobility between the last two decades and final decade of that person's life. But as we've seen in some high-profile cases, how often a person changes location, moving around the country, that can affect their results in isotopic testing. Tooth and bone testing does come with a big caveat, though. The person can't have moved around a lot to regions with different stable oxygen isotopic compositions in the drinking water, or their stable oxygen isotopic signatures will actually become kind of muddled. The longer you stay in one place, the more of an isotopic signature you'll incorporate into your tissues. So there are definitely limitations to exactly how much we can pinpoint a person's geographic mobility based on how much they move around. And the more mobile a person is, the trickier it can become. But if you take a couple weeks vacation in a fun place over the summer, you don't have to worry. That's just a small-term blip in your signatures, and it doesn't really affect our interpretations too much. But if you want to trace a person's mobility for a shorter time frame, what can you do? One of the best ways to do this is via tissues that regenerate at a rapid pace, such as a person's nails or hair. On average, our nails grow about 3 millimeters a month, and our hair grows about 0.5 to 1.7 millimeters per month, which is why a bad haircut sticks around a lot longer than a bad manicure. Both nails and hair are great for short-term tracing as they grow incrementally at relatively predictable rates. In fact, I've actually used stable oxygen isotope analysis of hair to trace mobility of a couple of individuals a few years ago. Without divulging too many of the details of the case, I was presented with hair samples from two individuals from a law enforcement agency. 
So my preference is to have law enforcement provide me with as few details as possible as I treat each analysis like a puzzle that I have to work out. So I didn't know anything why I was processing the samples for origin analysis. I was able to incrementally analyze the hair samples by taking one millimeter snips of the hair, which represent roughly a month's worth of growth. To my surprise, samples from both of the individuals return nearly identical results. This means that even though they died nearly two years apart and likely did not know each other in life, they were traveling the same routes during the months preceding each of their deaths. I once had someone tell me that stable isotope analysis isn't real forensic science, since it doesn't provide you with information about a person's identity like DNA does. Of course, DNA is the gold standard for identification, but you have to have a familial comparison sample to examine that DNA. So if you don't know where a person's from, then you don't know where to begin looking for possible relatives to get that comparison DNA sample from. That's the magic of stable isotope analysis. We can help you narrow down where to begin looking for possible relatives so that you don't waste your time or resources looking. It can be particularly useful in situations where an individual was known not to have moved around a lot. For example, if we were asked to analyze the remains of an individual who were told was born and raised in Atlanta, and experienced relatively minimal geographic mobility over their lifetime. But when we tested the remains, they had an oxygen ice escape banding pattern similar to that of someplace, say, like Wyoming. Then we can exclude that person as a possible candidate for being the person from Atlanta. It's a really useful exclude or cannot exclude tool, particularly when we're trying to suss out where a person may have originated or resided for a long period of time. The GBI's plans to have samples tested via isotopic analysis in the Twiggs County John Doe case, they're already underway. But we also talked to Agent Weathersby about other avenues of identification. I know you're also interested in forensic genealogy. How do you hope that can help you in this case? Well, again, like the isotopic testing, the forensic genealogy can, again, shorten that pool of possible um, victims are possible pe missing people who is my victim and I would like to narrow that as narrow as possible I look at the genealogy and the isotopic is just two forks of the same branch trying to get me to the same location when we've covered cases like Julie Doe or Dennis Doe in the past cases where there's hope that a viable sample can be taken we know that scientists and genealogists are looking for something specific but we've never really gotten into what that entails and what makes a sample viable for forensic genealogy. After all, the DNA that we see on TV, touch DNA, profiles that can rule someone in or out at a crime scene, even exonerate the wrongly convicted, that's an entirely different kind of testing that requires a different kind of sample. To understand more about the challenges faced when pursuing forensic genealogy, especially in older cases where bodies have not been well-preserved, bones have been treated, or cremation has occurred, and few samples remain, or those samples are degraded, we reached out to Dr. Kelly Kincaid. Dr. Kincaid is CEO of one of the most fascinating forensic laboratories in the country, Astrea. It's a place known for doing what other labs might find impossible. They can get viable samples from bones or hair that others haven't been able to process and develop profiles that can be used in DNA analysis. 
Dr. Kincaid describes the lab as a, quote, high-touch custom service for those rare cold case samples that fail all other traditional and even some newer technology for DNA sequencing. Astrea can even test rootless hairs. Dr. Kincaid's background is in bioarchaeology, with an emphasis in ancient DNA and the technology used to analyze it. At Astrea, they apply what they know about testing ancient DNA to current forensic samples. And with those techniques, they're able to take on and help resolve some of the toughest cases. We asked Dr. Kincaid to talk to us about the kind of DNA testing done in their labs, what types are used in criminal investigations, and the different samples needed for each, and the methods by which she obtains them. In law enforcement, when an agency says DNA testing, they're traditionally referring to what's called STR testing. And STR is one of these regions of the genome that differ between individuals. It stands for short tandem repeats. And these types of repeat regions in humans are really useful because they differ in length between individuals. So an STR analysis looks at a number of these different repeat regions to develop a profile for an individual, like a fingerprint. Uh, that could be used for comparison to other STR profiles. So STR testing is the type of DNA testing that law enforcement agents most traditionally use. There are some limits to that, which leads to other kinds of DNA testing they could be referring to, one of which is uh, a different type of genetic variation in the human genome called a SNP. A SNP, unlike STRs, which are defined by being um, different lengths of repeats, a SNP is a type of genetic variation that differs at a single base pair in a DNA sequence among individuals. So SNP testing is surveying all of the positions across the genome, or at least a subset of those positions that have been found to be useful in discriminating between people and just isolating those and developing a profile of those. An STR profile must be compared with an STR profile. A SNP profile must be compared with a SNP profile. So in forensics, STR tests, STR analysis has been the dominant form of DNA testing and it is what the, the profiles from STR analysis are the profiles that are in these law enforcement databases. Uh, so a database, like maybe you've, you've heard of CODIS, um, these databases will have millions of STR profiles of known people. And so a, an agency may be asking the question, does my unknown samples STR profile match any of the profiles that exist in this database? Or do they match maybe an STR profile of a known person in hand whose STR profile I also have? So it's a very powerful and sensitive of approach of asking this question about does this sample match any knowns? Um, but if, if that person, if the if the match doesn't exist in the database, then a match will not be made. 
thanks to the direct consumer genetic companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com and MyHeritage, those kinds of companies, millions of people are now getting their own SNP profiles and in some cases depositing their SNP profiles in open source databases. And in this way, a SNP profile from an unknown individual whose sample we might have can be compared to a database. And instead of making identical matches the way that STR profile can be used, a SNP profile can be used to estimate degrees of relatedness in order to find relatives and, and narrow down who in the world does this sample belong to rather than does this sample match anyone who I already know. So I guess if we're thinking in terms of cases that our listeners would be familiar with, the STR would be what we'd see in wrongful convictions. And the SNP profiles would be, say, the Golden State Killer. SNP testing is not currently a legal form of identification, where STRs, which have decades of uh, use in the forensics field and are subject to very strict quality assurance standards that are set by the FBI. Um, these STR analyses are sort of tried and true um, and very good at what they do, but what they can do is limited. Law enforcement agents will often ask how much material we need to get enough DNA for the types of testing that we hope to do. And what's amazing is that you don't really need a lot of material for example, with bones or teeth, we focus just on getting about 150 milligrams of bone powder or just the root of a tooth. And if you can imagine what 150 milligrams looks like, just picture sort of an ibuprofen tablet. You know, it's a very small amount of powder that we put into the steps of DNA extraction. No matter what kind of DNA testing, is done, every sample must go through the process of DNA extraction. And so for us, that means the, the sample is incubated in different solutions that release the DNA from inside the cells. So the cells are broken apart and the DNA is liberated into solution. And now you have a bunch of cellular debris and a bunch of other junk and your DNA and your objective is to isolate and purify out just the DNA part of, of the solution and then make sure that you can purify that. At that point, the process differs depending on what testing you are doing. So if you are doing SDR testing, you would use a method called PCR, polymerase chain reaction. Um, if you are doing direct sequencing like we do at Estrella, then you would take your DNA and convert it into a form that can be sequenced. And so after DNA extraction is the point where you decide what methods will I perform to accomplish the DNA test necessary. So a law enforcement agency will often send us either skeletonized remains or a, an element from the skeleton, um, whether that's a tooth or maybe it's a long bone or rootless hair. Hair is another type of sample that we specialize in. And 
you'd be surprised that the methods to extract DNA from both of those sample types is pretty much the same. The difference between processing a skeletal sample is the pre-preparation. So let's take an example of a tooth. We actually take a Dremel tool with a diamond wheel and cut the tooth at the CEJ. It's where the crown meets the root. And we remove the root and we pulverize it into powder. If we are working with a long bone, we will use the same approach where we use a Dremel tool to cut a small section that you know weighs you know only a gram or so, and we pulverize that into a powder. So what we're starting with in the DNA extraction process is a powder form of the bone. And this is to sort of give you the most amount of surface area because there are billions and billions of cells represented in, you know, 100 milligrams of bone powder. And you want access to as much surface area of those cells as possible because the process of DNA extraction is first exploding those cell walls. You want to destroy the cell wall so that the DNA that is in each cell spills out into the solution. You know, it's a, a buffer. And the same goes for a hair strand. So the process of degrading um, hair first requires some difference between the, pro the process of processing, the processing of hair first requires some breakdown of the uh, hair structure to get access to more of the cells that are in the shaft and along the shaft. Uh, but after that, the process of extracting, isolating the the DNA from the cells in the sample is, is identical. Once you have DNA and all the cellular debris, and maybe you have RNA and you have proteins, now you have to be able to separate just the DNA from all of that other junk. And you know, DNA has some wild properties, like it's negatively charged and other things that allow it to do kind of some cool things in molecular biology and chemistry. And one one way we can just pull out just the just the DNA molecules, just those nucleic acids, is by uh, incubating the sample with some chaotropic salts and silica. And in the presence of these salts, DNA will bind to silica such that you can wash away everything else. And what you have retained is the, just the DNA molecules um, that are bound to this substrate that you can now uh, release and, and clean. So what you are end up with is a little tube with a completely clear liquid that you can't see anything in that likely contains you know, hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of different genome representations. So DNA, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies of DNA. Once you have the sample that you just mentioned, how do you ascertain that viability of the sample for forensic genealogy? So for forensic genealogy, what we require is a SNP profile, right? And a SNP profile is looking across the entire human genome, the entire DNA sequence of the human genome, and finding these regions of difference that I mentioned that are very important. And so what you actually need is to make sure that you have enough DNA to cover the entire length of the human genome. Now that is like astronomically huge. It's 
three billion different positions. Um, but it's possible to reconstruct all the DNA fragments that are present in your sample to cover the entire human genome. So when we're looking for the viability of a sample for forensic genealogy, we first have to sequence the DNA that's in the sample. Then we have to see, do we have enough DNA fragments that cover the whole a human genome? And if so, then we can pull out each SNP position to put into our you know, SNP profile, our genotype file it's called. So what we're looking for is a sample that has just enough human DNA. And this is no small task because, like I said, a skeletal element that has been weathered or maybe it's a few decades old, um, maybe it's been sitting in water, there's all kinds of conditions that you know skeletal remains or human remains can be in, they're often infiltrated by environmental microbes. So sometimes we extract, during DNA extraction, we extract all DNA, regardless if it's human, bacterial, fungus, virus, anything, it ends up there. And you have to sequence the DNA to understand what proportion of that is human. And sometimes that's only say 1%. So to ascertain a sample's viability, we have to know even at 1% of this mixture, do we have enough DNA molecules to reconstruct um, the entire human genome and make sure that when we are identifying a specific SNP, it's accurate, that we've observed it, and we feel accurate that we're calling it correctly. How does problem solving come into play when you're faced with a more difficult case? Do you have alternative methods to try and extract that DNA? You know, having over a decade of experience in the world of ancient DNA research and handling archaeological human remains that are sometimes hundreds and thousands of years old, I have seen a lot of really poor quality samples come through my lab. And that really informs us how we handle these difficult forensic cases. And so at each step along the way from, you know, sample preparation through uh, DNA extraction and through preparing those molecules for the sequencer, there are little tweaks that you can sort of do. Um, you know, maybe your bone uh, has been sitting in soil and you want to try to eliminate more of the bacteria, you might soak it in a little bleach solution, for example. Or maybe the humic acid in the soil is causing a problem for the chemical reactions that have to occur, uh, and it, they are in inhibiting the reaction, well, maybe you will um, perform an additional purification or a different type of buffer to purify. Maybe you'll add, you know, isopropyl alcohol, or maybe, you know, th this is an example, but there's lots of ways you can look at the sample and learn about its context to decide how you will approach getting the most DNA from the sample, even if it's ultra short DNA fragments, maybe that's all you have. You know, a lot of DNA extraction methods that are common, say out of a box, you know, maybe you purchase a kit, a DNA extraction kit, they often will purify out fragments that are say shorter than a hundred base pairs. Um, 
And if you do that to a particularly degraded sample, you will lose all of the DNA that is available. So the extraction protocols are really important for making sure that you're capturing uh, even the smallest pieces that, you know, in other tests might not be that useful. Um, but, you know, for us, you know, taking this sort of boutique approach, this, this very case-by-case -case approach is, I think, what makes us able to get DNA from um, samples that maybe have failed in other, in other methods and other labs. DNA extraction is, a, is the step that every sample must go through in order to, in order to do DNA testing. Um, and we know for a fact that, for example, hair, all of the DNA present in hair is generally less than 50 base pairs long. And traditional forensic testing like STR analysis requires that your DNA fragments be at least 100, if not two or 300 base pairs long in order to observe the marker, then this is why samples like hair will always fail traditional tests and have long thought to just not have DNA, period. But in fact, there's plenty of DNA. It is just so short that the only way to observe it is to directly sequence it. It's been long thought that rootless hairs just have no DNA, and that's pretty far from the truth. It's just that all the DNA fragments there are too short to observe with traditional forensic testing. And so direct sequencing is this, you know, sheds this light on this whole population of very important molecules. With direct sequencing, we can develop a SNP profile. If you received a sample from a decedent like the Twiggs County John Doe, remains that have been well-preserved, what would be your approach? Are there particular areas of the skeletal remains that would more consistently produce viable samples? The samples that we choose to work with, if given the option, and supposing there is no hair, is generally the teeth. The reason we like the teeth is that they are somewhat of a closed system, not quite. They can still sort of uptake environmental microbes and the things that um, produce contamination, DNA contamination in the sample. Um, but they're generally intact. They're protected from weathering a little bit more. You know, as as I said, we use the root, which is you know buried deep within the maxilla or the mandible. You know, the the face or the jaw. Uh, so this is the type of sample that we often choose um, to work with. A molar has three or four roots, um, so we can actually get three or four different extractions from a single tooth, which is nice if. Um, if, if law enforcement, say, has very limited uh, remains and these samples are extremely precise, being able to get as many extractions from a single sample is, is, is beneficial. There's a bone in the skull that is very hard to access, but that has been shown to produce high-quality DNA. It's the petrous portion of the temporal bone, and it is deep within the skull such that, you know, there has to be some destructive analyses uh, to access it. You know, I think that lots of folks who are, you know, in this field are developing, you know, non-destructive ways of accessing the petrous portion. But this petrous portion of the skull is this really dense uh, bone that is almost like, um, like a pearl 
it's it's extremely extremely dense. It kind of breaks our uh, equipment, if you know, our our uh, Dremel tools sometimes, um, and that that probably has the most consistently viable amount of DNA. But because it's so destructive, we often go for things like teeth. Um, long bones are often also used, but uh, like I had said, they can be overwhelmingly uh, colonized by bacterial DNA. Astrea's techniques, which we plan to further explore in a future episode, offer hope for cold cases that, so far, have not yielded viable samples for forensic genealogy. Agent Weathersby's next move, if isotopic testing does not narrow the field enough to identify the Twiggs County John Doe, will be forensic genealogy. In many ways, this case is so much more solvable than many others we've covered. It's less than 20 years old. The decedent was not cremated. The evidence was preserved. The file is very extensive. Multiple forensic anthropologists have reviewed the decedent's remains. The scene of discovery was carefully investigated grid style, and the file has not been through dozens of hands. There is strong sample material for both isotopic and SNP analysis. Two forensic reconstructions, done by one of the best artists in the country, still exist. The only thing that's lacking is national media coverage of the case, with a victim who may have come from Florida or other southeastern states, or maybe from Mexico or Central or South America, getting those details out beyond Central Georgia. That is an essential piece in this puzzle. And maybe that's where you come in. If you have any information regarding the identity of the Twiggs County John Doe, please call the GBI Region 13 office at 478-987-4545 or the Twiggs County Sheriff at 478-945-3357. You can see pictures of both facial reconstructions on our social media. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is a fully independent show and we appreciate listener support. If you try out the products we mention, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us over on Patreon. We're raising Patreon funds to continue to fund the Millbrook Twins billboard, begin a therapy fund for families who've been on the show, and many other projects. You can read a public post about those goals on our Patreon page. On Patreon, you can get early release, ad-free versions of our regular episodes for only $5 a month. And for as little as $1 a month, you can access blogs and our new live streams. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Waters, Kim Fritz, and Jessica Ann. Family and law enforcement interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced and engineered by Maura Curry. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Angie Dodd. Currently, our monthly donation is going to the Black and Missing Foundation. 